Excellent. An ale for me. And for my officers. In fact, ales for everyone. Turn backward. With Rick and Rick and Will and Zemma. Oh, yes. <clears throat> Nook neck, which is Klingon for what do you want? which is a standard Klingon greeting. And if what you want is an awesome podcast talking about loads of Star Trek, this is the place to be. This is 10 Backward. I'm your host, Rick Everson, and I have co-hosts, Rick Palmer. Hello. Uh, Gemma Turland. Hello. And Will Turland. Oh, <laughs> hello. All we got was a turlet. Yeah, you cut out very slightly. So I just heard turlet and thought, uh, well, it's 50 50, so I'm going to guess it was me. But I went alphabetically. Uh, (laughs) Yeah, Gemma is here. She's just just coughing at the moment. You made me laugh. You made me laugh. Who do you like then? Oh, I quite like the I quite like our, sc- our scrappy <laughs> failed introduction. It's, it's in keeping with how um, we usually roll. Well, if if you're a regular listener, you know that it's Will Turland and Gemma Turland. If you're a new listener, this is pretty much as good as it's going to get. So you know, hope you stay. Yeah. This is our best opening yet. Actually. <laughs> yes. Uh, and we today are going to be talking about DC Fontana, the uh, noted Star Trek writer who uh, sadly passed away um, in the second of this month. So uh, we thought we'd have a bit of a discussion about the massive, massive impact that she's had on Star Trek. Um, so Dorothy Catherine Fontana, to give her a full name, um, began writing on the original series. Um, she also wrote for the animated, for Next Gen, and for Deep Space Nine. So she's she's left um, left a mark on on several of the uh, of the first few series. Uh, Are there any other writers that have that have written for as many series as she has? That is a very good question. Um, the Memory Alpha page lists her as having the distinction of being one of the few people to have worked on all of those series. Yeah. Um, unfortunately, it doesn't give you an idea of anyone else who's done that. Hmm. I can't yeah. off the top of my head think of anybody. Um, possibly David no, Gerald. He wrote Trouble with Tribbles. He was heavily involved in the beginning of Next Generation. Um, and I, I know he was at least on set for some of Trials and Tribulations. Ah, okay. So, okay. But, um, but but yeah, not, not many. She, yeah, not many people have written for that many Star Trek series, have they? No, no, and certainly not sort of been there right from the beginning. Absolutely, no. Yeah. But she, she wasn't just a writer, was she? She she was part of the the original team that that yes. began the whole thing. She I was, read that I read that she was Gene yeah. um, Roddenberry's secretary. She started out yeah. as, and then from there, she got a chance to do a rewrite of the Charlie X. Gene Roddenberry originally had the sort of the idea for the episode, but couldn't get together a sort of a screenplay for it. So, was it Robert Justman sort of uh, convinced Gene Roddenberry to let DC Fontana? Take a whack at it, and that was it. Yeah, 
Because she she had mm. already written for yeah. other shows, hadn't she? Yeah, yeah, so, I think yeah. so. Um, yeah, and oh, um, looking looking again at um, Memory Alpha. Apparently, the the idea came from Gene Roddenberry, a one sentence synopsis when he was outlining the series, um, and then it's actually Dorothy Fontana who fleshed it out into the full story. So, hmm. I mean, uh, we, okay. there are. I wonder what the one one that that one line synopsis is. They meet a guy from the yeah. future. Was it a guy from the future? You a crazy guy. Yeah. It's like yeah. a kid who's a, a god. Apparently, it's not, yeah, it's, yeah. yeah it's title was today. Charlie became god. Uh, yeah. Uh, yeah. So, um, he, he. Uh, we actually, we, me and Gemma just watched um, Charlie X just before recording this podcast. Mm-hmm. Actually. Um, and uh, Charlie's powers are very, very Q-like. Very, yes. Um, which, which I thought was interesting because I know that didn't DC Fontana also write the, or at least co-wrote the um, Encounter at Farpoint, she did. where we where Q is introduced. There's, um, there's almost an irony because she the the Q subplot was added by Roddenberry. I thought uh, that was it. Yeah, because I think I think. She wrote the Farpoint element, and then it, mm. they pushed to have a basically they wanted a two-hour pilot. The networks wanted a two-hour pilot, so Roddenberry added the Q subplot to sort of essentially double the story. Yeah, mm-hmm. I, ironically, sort of taking kind of Charlie's powers from Charlie X and, mm. and making a recurring character from mm. from Q. Yeah, which is really interesting. So, um. So yeah, what what did you guys think of Charlie X on the rewatch? Um, I I really liked it actually. <clears throat> I th- I thought it was great. Uh, it it felt very it felt like the um, there were a lot of other original series episodes that sort of touch on that idea, hmm. uh, like someone who kind of has magic powers hmm. and the crew have to deal with that. Yeah, like powers beyond anyone's comprehension basically but he also he didn't have the capacity to deal with his own powers yeah he was he had yeah as they kept stating he had the mind of a child yeah yeah absolutely no social graces so he he didn't understand or care about the impact of his powers yeah yeah i I, Um, I find it really interesting the way that you've got a, a, a teenage boy like taken from essentially isolation and stuck into suddenly the middle of human society uh, yeah, yes. Yeah. It's, it's it's quite a fantastic story, I think, actually, because there's something very relatable about the the outsider suddenly in trying to work as you know as a teenager, you're suddenly trying to work your way through the social complexities of life while dealing with a whole bunch yeah. of other stuff about yourself and your feelings around that. Yeah, mm. very... I think because as as Will pointed out um, at the end. He's done some horrendous things. He's terrorised the whole of the ship. He's killed one crew. But then at the end, you still were led to feel some sympathy for him. And his plight, which was... um... And Kirk Kirk has some sympathy for him. And he sort of pleads... Because at the the end of the episode, the the aliens that had sort of given him this power to survive came back uh, to to tell him off and take him (laughs) home. But Kirk, <laughs> yeah, but Kirk sort of pleads with them to say, "Well, he, you know, he's human, and he should be with his, 
with his people and may, maybe we can help him. Um, I mean, me and Gemma were always like, how? How are they going to help him? The boy belongs with his own kind. That would be impossible. With training, we can teach him to live in our society. If he can be taught not to use his power. We gave him the power so he could live. He's pretty dangerous and he's murdered loads of people. <laughs> but but I, I really like that. that um, yeah, and uh, like... Kirk kind of wanted to save him at the end. Yeah. Yeah, it was that that felt very Star Trek. That like, felt like a mm. really um, what I always think of a very Star Trek ending, uh, where it's where it's a little bit touchy feely. But I don't, but I don't mean that in a negative way. Like mm. I mean that that it um, like, I, like I don't know. It's a sort of a slightly more thoughtful, um, it's kind of sympathetic ending than you might get in another sci-fi story. Yeah, yeah. You feel, you, mean, you do feel bad for Charlie because ultimately he's just taken off you know he's he's had that very brief glimpse into into his own society and then he's taken away from it again because he, he couldn't integrate so it's like mm. you know obviously yes I, I it's how would people deal with charlie with the power yeah. he's got at his disposal but um yeah it's, it's a shame the Thasians couldn't have like removed his powers and let him link the humanity but yeah i thought that was going to be the ending actually but then but maybe that would have just been a bit too neat yeah um and and a little bit too much of a sort of feel-good ending actually it felt like a sort of realistic ending yes Um, yeah i like that early on like kurt like they, they you know they know that this is a kid who um who has been on his own for for like his whole you know most of his childhood in his whole adult life i like really early on kirk has a real go at him because he keeps interrupting him i'd like to see your ship now all of it the people and everything you keep interrupting mr evans that's considered wrong you see well, kirk hang on a minute just remember <laughs> yeah. like this guy might not be Completely, he may, he may not have quite the manners that you're <laughs> that you're used to. <laughs> yeah, like give him a chance. Yeah, they are quite. Yeah, it's 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 quite a fun element of the story actually to see Kirk trying to sort of be a mentor to this boy, yeah. albeit sort of reluctant to shoulder the role at points. But it's, uh... it's a bit like a um, it's a bit like that Voyager episode Q two, I suppose. Do you know? I, yeah, I, I was thinking that. Is that when that where where there's an adolescent cue that they they sort of have to yeah cue for oh, the sun? Yeah. yeah. So yeah, there is. There, yeah, I think there's quite a strong element there. And Janeway has to play the godmother um, role. So yeah, in that same way that Kirk has to suddenly be a be a role model and a mentor to this boy. Um. But then, obviously, ultimately, this 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 adolescent child murders a ship full of people. <laughs> so that's, yeah, that's a point against him. <laughs> <laughs> that's it, and, and terrorizes poor Yeoman Rand. Yeah. Yeah. There's there's some there's some slightly uncomfortable scenes, some stuff which maybe hasn't aged that brilliantly, where Charlie. Uh, slaps Yeoman Rand on the ass, mm, and like yeah, she, you know, she, she, she actually she does bring him up on it. She's yeah. not like, oh you. <laughs> um, she like I, I like that you know she does say yeah. no, you can't do that. That's not acceptable. Um, but then she's like, oh, oh Kirk, Kirk or McCoy will yeah. explain why. And then I'll yeah. tell you why. 
<laughs> Kirk, Kirk's, Kirk's all like, no, oh, you, you can't, you just, oh, a man, man to man. That's so you can slap another man's ass. <laughs> you can't slap a lady's ass. To paraphrase. Um, but I think what they were going for there was Kirk. It was more about Kirk uh, finding it awkward having to be a sort of a father figure mm. and having to explain you know to a to a sort of you know to a to a child what why you can't do things like that yeah i think that's what they were going for but it um yeah i don't know if it quite translates that that brilliantly <laughs> now but i do think actually we we Gemma, you were saying there's a there's a bit of a parallel here between Kirk and Picard in how neither of them are comfortable. They both within... hate children. They both, yeah. yeah, they both hate children. <laughs> like, definitely from the very beginning, especially the bit where he's interrupting all the time. Yeah, yeah, Kirk yeah. hates that. <laughs> that was very Picard. There's an episode of TNT where Picard has to look after a unruly sort of ma- young man, isn't there? What's it called? Um, yeah. That young man's not as powerful as Charlie X, but but explores, I guess it, ex, it explores similar territory. <clears throat> yeah, he's, he's been raised mm. by another race. Um, yeah, so there is that, that cultural clash that he's trying to sort of guide and mentor him through. So. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, so it feels like it feels like Charlie X because it's it's really early on in um, season one of the original series, isn't it? I think it's mm. only episode three, but it feels like it's had a lasting impact on the rest of mm. Star Trek in that it's a it's a trope that that Star Trek's revisited in 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 pretty much every series and, yeah. and yeah. plenty of other episodes. Well, it's not that many episodes later we see Trelane, a you know a godlike being whose parents turn up at the end to admonish him for playing around with humans. So yeah, it's a distinct yeah. echo, and Trelane is very obviously an inspiration for Q. So mm-hmm. yeah, ah, okay. I think there is a massive impact. Um, she's also written, um, well, Star Trek's first time travel story, Tomorrow's Yesterday. Ah, okay. Again, sets up sets up a recurring motif within Star Trek of time travel stories. Mm-hmm. Is that the one where they establish that you can slingshot around the sun <laughs> to is. travel back in time? Ah, <laughs> cool. Yeah. Which, which they revisit in Star Trek for the movie. Really? Isn't that one where they're doing? Yeah. They're actually they, they've done that intentionally. They've gone back in time intentionally to sort of observe Earth's past. Is that the episode? That no. This this time is accidental. Right. But at the end of series two, they do that. Uh, and that's the episode where they meet Gary Seven. Right. Uh, okay. That's where they've deliberately gone back for historical study. So. That's the episode where it's a bit of a it's a bit of a backdoor pilot, isn't it? Is, it? Yes. I'm not, I don't mean that. I'm not describing <laughs> Gary Seven as a. <laughs> oh, I mean. No. <laughs> I mean, um, Roddenberry had an idea for a for a, another show. Yeah. Which would be called Gary Seven, and. Um, <laughs> Yeah, uh, and that was sort of like a, a way of getting a pilot episode done without having to get the money to do a pilot well, what, episode. Well, I'm very naive. What does that mean? That that. <laughs> what are you? What are you implying? What are you implying with that? 
<laughs> innuendo. Explain the phrase. <laughs> I mean, um, so he's a pilot who likes to enter the house via the back door <laughs> rather than the front door, so uh, he's sneaky like a ninja. <laughs> That's all I'm going to say on that. This hey, is an episode where... this is alienating <laughs> any uh, potential listeners. Yes, I, I also <laughs> hope that. I know if they, if they stuck through that amazing intro, <laughs> I wouldn't want to drive them away now. <laughs> um, this is Paradise. That's one I have a, had a rewatch on, um, which is a fantastic episode where um, plant spores make everyone all, all sort of super happy and not care about starships anymore. Mm. That's another sort of iconic Star Trek episode, isn't it? The Happy Spores episode. Yeah. Yeah. We um I think I think that may be is that possibly our first the first time we see Kirk and Spock get into a fist fight? All right, you mutinous, disloyal, computerized half breed, we'll see about you deserting my ship. The term half-breed is somewhat applicable, but computerized is inaccurate. Ah, right, okay. Yes, yeah. Another precedent set for the series. Um, (laughs) Yeah. But it also gives us a good chance to explore a a different side of Spock. Spock, under the influence of the spores in this side of paradise, can be free and let out his emotions, and that's kind of... That's a new side to him. It gives us a lot more insight into his character and everything that he's keeping sort of uh, bottled up, really. So I think in terms of the characterization, that's a very important episode when you look at Spark. It, it feels like um, uh, DC Fontana had a big influence in the way that Spock developed as well, because d- did she also write um, Journey to Babel? She did, yes. Which, where we... Where we... Yeah, yeah. Um, and I think, yeah, I think I remember she was ma- she was maybe inspired by um, a line in the episode that that you were talking about, Rick, where the, where I think Spock mentions his his father is an ambassador, and and she always felt like she wanted to explore that further. Go mm. read on a memory alpha, and that's where where Journey to Babel, where the sort of spark came from for mm. that. Yeah. yeah, I mean, it's like it's likely that without um, without DC Fontana, Spock might might not really be the character that that we mm. sort of remember today. I th- well, I think I think that's a very important factor. Journey to um, Babel is extremely a- a revealing of Spock's character in that he won't, he doesn't talk about his family. Um, you know, when when his best friend says, "Oh, do you want to go down and visit your parents?" It's like, "Yeah, that that was them just then." Okay. Mm-hmm. So. Uh... <laughs> And he definitely no, doesn't want to talk about his um, his sister. Does <laughs> sister, he? no, he doesn't. Yeah, he doesn't mention he really her. Drawn on that at all. <laughs> yeah, well, but I mean, there, there's the precedent set that he he keeps these things close to his chest. So, um, really yeah. close. Yeah, but really, really close. To, just... no, to be fair, at that point, he's not he's not allowed to mention her, is he? No. No, I suppose no, not. There you go. He, d- he also doesn't mention Cybok no, either, does but he? But then so. you wouldn't really, would you? No. There's always that crazy uncle you don't like to talk about <laughs> in your family, is it? But at Christmas, when, when your grand's had a drink, <laughs> find out all about it. That's <laughs> uh, just my family. <laughs> uh, your family get, have a few drunken rants about Cybok. 
<laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, they hate Star Trek Five. <laughs> I, I was going to say, but yeah, J- Journey to to Babel's a, re- a really actually. There's a lot of sort of Trek lore established in that episode, isn't there? Is that is that where we first see Tellarites and Andorians as it well? Is, yeah, yeah. Um, so yeah, so it's kind of a really important episode that one, and it, it's also really good. Um, oh god, yeah, it's a really right? exciting episode. Yeah. Uh, and and Sarek is um, is a is a brilliant character, and he's, is yeah. that the only episode that Sarek is in the mm. original series? Actually, yeah, that's he's, he's in what, one solitary episode, and obviously returns for Star Trek three, four, and six. Mm. Yeah, two times yeah. in Next Gen, so an enduring another enduring um, element of Star Trek lore. Mm. Yeah, another one. Which she, one of my personal favourite episodes that she wrote is the Ultimate Computer. So I flipping love that episode. Oh, I yeah, I really like that episode. Is that where they they they, they have a sort of computer upgrade, uh, and it uh, the compute the sort of AI kind of takes over the Enterprise, yeah. and they mm. it sort of engage in a sort of ends up being a sort of a war games kind of scenario. It's the one with yeah. um, with Daystrom. He he's on the yes. and he's like. Uh, what's the what's the computer called? Mark One or something? What's it called? What is M5. it? M five. M five. That's his M five. It's like you, you <laughs> Mark, are. Mark One with him. He says you are great. <laughs> I am great. And he's just like, <laughs> Nothing can hurt you. I gave you that. You are great. I am great. Ah, oh, it's just a funny line. But I, I but <laughs> yeah. DC Fontana. I mean, she re, she wrote rewrote that idea, didn't she? <laughs> I read that because the person who was who originally wrote that. Um, didn't want to make some changes that they suggested. So, mm. as much as as much as writing like her own stories, I, I I get the sense that she had a real talent for sort of taking taking ideas and scripts that weren't quite working and and reworking them. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. It must be hard to do. I don't. It must be hard to take someone else's. I mean, if it is someone else's, well, yeah, if it's someone else's script, and and sort of putting your own spin on it your own mark and it, it's something that when it happened to her i think particularly frustrated her she um she did some episodes in season three event of original series where she ended up changing her name on the credits because she didn't really you know it was sort of rewritten so much that she didn't really want to be associated with it was um the enterprise incident one of those episodes yes yes yeah i mean I really like the Enterprise episode. I do. Yeah, but also Way to Eden. Ah, right. Which I don't like as much. Is that the, is that the um, is that the very last episode of season three? No, that um, turnabout well, turn turn intruder is the last one. Way to Eden is that's it. <clears throat> that's it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Space hippies is Way to Eden. Yeah. So. <clears throat> that's it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Although I still, I still love that um, Charles Napier is in that. It is weird to see him because he usually plays such authoritarian figures. Yeah, he really does, and to, so to see him as this crazy space hippie is just so bizarre. <laughs> uh, so yeah, a massive, massive impact she has throughout original series. Some mm. really key episodes okay. and some stuff with some really lasting. I mean, as we said, Ultimate Computer the introduction. Daystrom. Daystrom is mentioned ad nauseum through the rest of Star Trek. The Daystrom yeah. Institute is referenced frequently. 
she's definitely so, uh, she's definitely kind of key in the establishment of Star Trek canon. I would say more so than mm. probably more so than Gene Roddenberry or anyone. I get the sense that she had a real idea for the sort of you know before. I mean, I'm guessing at this point there weren't there weren't sort of series bibles that everyone got given, which they get now, don't they? Everyone, all the, mm. all the writers will get given a series bible, which you sort of work from and explains yeah. the, explains the world to you that you're you're going to be writing in. And it feels like like uh, DC Fontana sort of she had that knowledge of of the of the of the stories that had been told so far and made it into sort of a yeah a coherent sort of yes canon I think, world. Yeah. It does feel like the world, the, the universe is much more cohesive than it maybe would have been without her input. Mm. <clears throat> I mean, we're, we're skipping through. She, there was other episodes she wrote. We're not doing an exhaustive list here necessarily, mm. but uh, yeah, just those few is like the impact straight away there is big. Mm. Um, yeah, and then in, in the animated series she wrote Yesteryear, which I would definitely put up there as the best animated series episode yeah yeah me me too um it's that that's the one with uh where we see spock as a as a kid is that right yeah yes yeah that that, yeah. One, that one really stands out i think yeah yeah um it revisits the guardian of forever has a um has an accidental creation of an alternate timeline with no spock Oh, Guardian Guardian Forever, what have you done? (laughs) My bad. (laughs) You stupid big space donut. (laughs) Um, Not again. (laughs) But I think in the the way that Journey to Babel gave us so much Laura and Sarek and Spock, um, this gives us a new insight to Spock's childhood. Um, and it's it, it's a really fantastic episode. Um, I know the animated series has had questionable canon status, but uh, I kind of I I would happily take this as canon. I think it's a really good story. I don't see why it shouldn't be. <laughs> yeah, no. And it, it's it's, I mean, it's interesting that it, this is another uh, Spock based story from from DC Fontana as well. Again, developing mm. that the Spock character. Yeah, um, if you take this as canon, you have to take the one about like the the space devil <laughs> and, and Spock doing magic. And <laughs> yeah. What about well, the one where the Enterprise has a uh, uh, has a sort of inflatable Enterprise that you, they can use as a decoy? I guess that's canon. Yeah, I mean, but to be fair, in in Discovery, in this in Discovery, we see that ships have sort of emergency corridors that shoot out. So. It's not too much of a stretch to imagine a giant inflatable sp- spaceship. Yeah, right. yeah, um, why not? <laughs> the moment Discovery releases an inflatable balloon uh, decoy of itself is the moment I accept it as canon. <laughs> what? Oh, Discovery? Yeah. Uh, okay. Sorry. Yes. No, I'm joking. I, I accept Discovery as canon. But, <laughs> but uh, yeah, I don't know. Um, it's, it's, it's a crazy idea, but. I'd, I'd like to see it realised in today's visual effects. Uh, yeah, I'd like that. <clears throat> I think you were right when you said it's a crazy idea. I think the sentence could have finished there and um, that would have been fine. <laughs> what, what, you know, what... Could you, how would inflatable work in a void? 
Well, I guess. Well, I guess there'd be like a, ca- a canister. There'd be a canister of air that no, would surely... inflate it, right? Well, if you got yeah. air inside, you would need it. pressure on the outside for it to work properly. Hmm. I don't know. Yeah. Maybe. Yeah. yeah. Would it just sort of ex- like explode if, if there was no pressure on the outside to? Mm. Oh, there is stuff in space, right? I mean, I, space I, isn't space isn't empty. It's full of it's full of like a soup of a soup of materials and molecules, right? Yeah, I think. yeah, yeah. So maybe, but it, just not an. Not so that soup, but let's. Yeah. It might be. It might work. We, I, mean, I don't think we're ever going to find out. I still oh. need Wait a minute. To we can, I, mean, yeah. <clears throat> yeah. I think it would have to be a strong, um, quite a strong balloon, but it might work. I don't believe I don't in. in Lose, as they go higher in, in our atmosphere, they lose. Um, they expand, don't they? Yeah, do they I think they do. I think they I think get they to the do. point where it would just. So I, I think in space it would just expand and pop. Hmm. I think. <laughs> I agree. We know science. Yeah. <laughs> like putting too much air in the balloon. <laughs> Maybe that can be our next, the next episode where we um, interview an expert on something. We interview like a balloon yes. expert. <laughs> or a clown. Yeah, balloon or, expert. Um, niche episode. Willie Fogg. Oh, no, wait a minute. <laughs> Willie Phileas Fogg. Like, <laughs> um, one thing I was a little saddened by, I don't. I, is there a is there a bi- a biography of of DC Fontana? Because I I think I remember trying to look for one, and I'm not sure if there is one. I'm not aware of one offhand. Hmm. Well, maybe it'd be cool to get one. I I would I would definitely I would love to read it because I I'm kind of fascinated by the sort of the time that she well, when she started working what it, what that was like um, mm. the sort of mm. the sort of the, the sort of the the structure of the writing team because. Because nowadays, it sound, it seems really polished and and organised, but I, I get the sense that back in the late sixties, it was a bit more like a bit more freewheeling, yeah, a bit like mad, like a bit like Mad Men, but writing sci-fi, a bit like um, that, a bit. I guess it was a bit like the the writing people, the 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 writers that we see in that Benny Russell episodes of DS Nine a little bit. Well, there is a because the the writer that Kira represented in, in that episode, who had to basically had to use a pen name or um, initials because people, yeah, they had, people didn't know there was female and they were worried that would affect sales. Mm-hmm. No one would want to read stories written by a woman. That's exactly why she was known as DC Fontana. So people wouldn't go, what's a woman doing writing well, I can't stories? Watch this. It's written by a woman. <laughs> exactly. Exactly, and that was the that was the fear, and that that particular character was written partially in tribute to DC mm. Fontana. Um, so it was kind of a, a representation of her, and in recognition of that fact, mm. it's, uh, it's a, a sad reality of that time. It's, um they sort of had to downplay the fact that um, she mm. was a woman. This, mm. she's yeah. really sad. Because she was quite, um, she was a um, a big part of early next generation, at least, wasn't she? Was she was she part of the she sort was. of uh, yeah? Because we talked about how she um, she wrote uh, Encounter at Farpoint, um, mm. so yeah, she was there right at the beginning of of TNG, and mm-hmm. I guess the whole sort of establishing those characters. Mm. 
Which is interesting. Yes. Yeah, well, I mean, she would have written Grumpy Picard in the pilot. Oh, child-hating child child. Picard. Yeah. <laughs> and I, uh, I don't feel comfortable with children. She also co-wrote The Naked Now, which was the first Star Trek I ever saw. However, she used a pen name for that one because she wasn't happy with it. So. Yeah, yeah. I remember. I always remember that's the first episode you ever saw, Rick. Because it's not really a great episode. I do. Yeah. Have that. You, you do. Yeah. You won't let us forget it. <laughs> but it, it's also it's, it means, it's not a brilliant episode. Like, I really, no, I really like that you saw that, and you were like, "Yes, this is the show for me." It's like one of the weakest ever episodes. Well, it always sticks with me that it mentioned um, the original series episode that it was based off. And I was like, ah, internal consistent continuity. That's <laughs> <laughs> so what I thought at age 10. Of course. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, it's great that it's, it's an episode that the writer was so proud of. She, she didn't want to be associated yes. with it by name. Always, always a good sign. Yeah. Like the reverse of George Foreman. Like George Foreman was so proud of <laughs> of, the, of the of the of that grill that he put his name yeah, on it. Like... And DC Fontana was like re- reverse George Foreman. <laughs> I was like, so, I'm so ashamed of it. I gave myself another name. <laughs> so you don't know who I am. <laughs> DC Fontana is like reverse George Foreman. Is probably going to be the title what? of this episode. <laughs> in, uh, in, in in terms of pride of things and. <laughs> Not, not in, not in kind of you know, appearance or anything. <laughs> oh no, wait a minute. Actually, that's true, isn't it? Because George Foreman's a black man and yeah. D.C. Fontana's a white woman. So I guess that is an opposite, isn't it? No, no, I know. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Anywho, um... so um, Rick, do you know how how late into TNG? Um, she was writing episodes because I know she, I know she she did write an episode of DS Nine, didn't she? Um, did she write that? She did. She she only stayed in TNG for sort of about half the first yeah. season. Um, there was a lot of discontent mm. behind the scenes in series one. A lot of that is put on Roddenberry's lawyer, who was essentially trying to run the show in Roddenberry's voice, but. Doing an impression, like doing an impression of him. I knew Rick was going yeah. to jump on that idea. If, if, if you were kind, you would say that it was not Roddenberry's voice because Roddenberry wouldn't have treated people like that. Um, whether or not he, he would have, I don't know. It, I think it was clear that Roddenberry's not a well man by that point. So an opportunistic lawyer may have used that position to abuse his own powers. I don't, I don't know. I mean, you can watch something like Shatner's documentary mm. chaos on the bridge, which gives a bit more background. I, I, I was going to mention that. So it's a great, uh, yeah. uh, a great sort of insight into the, the politics of the time. Um, it's just mm. interesting to see people bickering and moaning about, um, <laughs> about other people. <laughs> Do you like that kind of thing? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, ultimately she departed the series as did many other notable people. And I don't know. I mean, I don't know what kind of impact that had. We we might never know what how things might have gone if they'd stayed. But yeah. I mean, I, uh, I think I think you know, at least at least she was able to make a, you know, the contribution she made was a really important one. It is it is a shame shame that 
I, I guess I guess as well there was a little bit of a gap after the original series ended, wasn't there? I mean, I guess she, she came back to TNG, which was good, but I suppose <laughs> after that, it's it's, it's a slightly different game. And well, yeah. she had credits for other stuff. Um, but Rogers in, during that gap. But Rogers, the six million dollar yeah. man, so. Yeah. The Logan's Run TV series. Yeah. Um, she wrote, uh, uh, she's credited for Babylon 5 as well. She is, mm. yeah. I yes. Don't know, don't know which episodes, but I, I think sort of early Babylon 5. Oh, if, um, only we, if only we had some sort of Babylon 5 fan on this podcast who could tell us. <laughs> yeah. They're very hard to find these days, right? <laughs> <laughs> Wait a second. I thought you guys were the Babylon 5 fans. <laughs> I'm gonna I'm gonna Google it right now. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, so it was always kind of a thing. Given that her record on early TNG was sort of not not what you'd consider the best episodes you ever see, although you could make arguments that they left an impact. Obviously, Encounter at Farpoint introduced um, most of the elements of Next Gen that were developed through the series. And she also co-wrote Heart of Glory, which really gave Worf his first proper outing in the series, doing a bit of Klingon stuff. So there's, there's some impact there. Again, I think there was some more mark left by her. So I wasn't sure in terms of when then she wrote an episode of Deep Space Nine, how that would turn out, but I rewatched Dax recently and I really enjoyed that way more than I ever remembered enjoying it before. Um, hmm. it's, it's a funny episode. It starts off a bit of an exciting kidnap drama um, with these guys out of nowhere suddenly trying to abduct Dax and then there's a tense thing as they've sabotaged the tractor beam um, just like Obi-Wan Kenobi um, <laughs> and so there's a tense moment as Cisco tries to restore the tractor beam and uh, in time to catch them and it's kind of misleading because then really it develops into a courtroom drama as they go into this extradition hearing um, but I think what's really important about it is this sets up the trill for Deep Space Nine, and the stuff established here stays with us then for the rest of the of um, DS Nine. They, estab- they establish yeah. that Join Trill is essentially a separate person, and we really flesh out the the species well way more than that single next gen appearance did. It it takes that concept and then really sort of fleshes that out and adds to it, um, and also that gives a nice little mystery. Thing for Odo to go solve in the background of this courtroom drama, so it's quite a lot of elements yeah. in the show. Is is that the episode where they're trying to try her for a crime that one of her past hosts committed? Yeah, they say they say that Curzon Dax murdered someone thirty years previously, yeah. and so um, yeah, the, yeah, the husband of a lover or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah a noted general on um, um, on Clystron Four, I think. And um, ultimately, it turns out Odo discovers that Curzon did have an alibi. He was in bed with the general's wife. And the reason he would, was willing to be put to death for the murder is because he wouldn't invoke that alibi to protect her honour. Um, uh, yeah, that's it. But I think mm-hmm. the, the, the meat of it is in the extradition hearing because there's all the legal runaround of trying to establish responsibility of a trill as a new host for the crimes of a previous host and that's where we get to say is it a new person is it a separate person 
you know, what essentially yeah. is a, a the, what does a, the joining of symbiont and host create? Before a symbiont is joined with any host, that host has lived a significant portion of his or her life from birth to what age, sir? Early to mid-twenties. Why not younger? To give the prospective host a chance to develop mature. They have to be old enough to make an informed judgment as to whether or not they really want to be joined. And once they are joined, this host's personality is completely suppressed by the symbiont. Oh, no. No, it's a joining. Because um, I think up to that, we'd assumed that all trill were joined, and this establishes actually tr joined trill are very rare, and it's a big mm. deal on their in their culture and stuff. You know, these are all things that play massive factor through the rest of the series. Uh, yeah, it's, it's it's an absolutely essential Dax episode, really, mm. isn't it? If you if you're going to do a a big uh, Dax rewatch, that's probably the 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 best starting place. Absolutely, and I think yeah, because I think you that gives you that primer and trill culture that you need to sort of go through the rest of the series. And I think it's nice that her final track writing credit was something that really set up and again, like all her other stuff, gives you this lasting stuff that really affects the rest of the story. That's very consistent for for her contributions. I think I've um. Just something's just come back to me. Actually, I've just remembered that DC Fontana wrote. Is it a boomerang? Is it a boomerang? Will? <laughs> no, it isn't. <laughs> I just happened to have remembered, Rick, that DC Fontana wrote uh, the Babylon Five episode, The War Prayer, on the 9th of March, nineteen ninety-four. <laughs> uh, Legacies on the twentieth of July, nineteen ninety-four, <laughs> and a distant star. Uh, 23rd of November 1994 just came back to me. Those are some new are, are, are those dates written on that boomerang? <laughs> yeah, my memory boomerang. <laughs> um, they're all, uh, yeah, they're all season one, one episodes. Um, I think in early Babylon 5, there were a few other writers involved, and then as um, as the the series went on, it was it was J M Straczynski who was who was writing everything. Um, uh, but yeah, I think she she wrote uh, she. Uh, I think the War Prayer is a pretty key uh, Mimbari episode in in. Um, I think a lot of uh, Mimbari stuff is established in that episode actually. So so again, like like she you know she she's she seems to have a trait for writing episodes which establish law. And canon and, and and like universe building, I guess world building. Um, yeah, I think she gets she gets what what people want to know. I suppose she can understand what the interesting parts of a, the potential that a, sh a show can have and what is there to be explored. Yeah, yeah, and and also kind of make make exposition uh, interesting as well. You know, kind of. Which is yeah. hard because it's hard, isn't it? Like I, I know there are there are plenty of them. It's it's a failing of some movies, especially there'll just be a point in a movie where there'll just be a massive dump of exposition to kind of help the audience understand yeah. what's going on, and then but, or a yeah. character that is just there for exposition, like Basil <laughs> Exposition in uh, the, the uh, Austin Powers movies, which riffs on that. But yeah. It is shit. <laughs> this this coffee tastes like shit. <laughs> I remember that line. <laughs> it is shit. 
<laughs> I think he says that. he's involved in that. Scene, yes, isn't he, he is. Yeah. <laughs> We'll save it for our Austin Powers um, podcast, which would be a short-lived series. It was. Right. We could we could call it all behave. <laughs> <laughs> um, I get the sense that uh, with Star Trek, it's a bit like how how Stan Lee gets a lot of the attention for Marvel stuff, but there are loads of other people that kind of contributed to Marvel comics being what they are. And why the films have been so successful. Mm. And a bit like with Star Trek, I think Gene Roddenberry is the focal point in terms of a person that you associate with Star Trek. There are loads of other people that have contributed to Star Trek and really laid the groundwork for it and the, the, laid out the bones of the of the of the franchise. Because I think, for, you know, a lot of the, in the original series, they you, you're not quite sure. The idea of a federation, all sorts of different things weren't set. And I think someone like DC Fontana did a lot to help sort of set those ideas. Not those, not all of those ideas, of course, but, you know, she was somebody who wrote in such a way as to help establish sort of a, 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 a cohesive universe in which that series existed. Yeah, yeah. Um and I think, you know, it's fair to say that Gene Roddenberry did, of course, had a massive impact on on Star Trek and was definitely a key player. But, yeah, I think you're absolutely right. <clears throat> there are plenty of other writers that that are really heavily involved with with, uh, with with setting everything up. And DC Fontana seems to be the one of the, definitely one of the main contributors. And certainly, as, as you said, I think her episodes, I think there's a lot of consistency in her episodes, in her the way that she sort of portrays the the Federation and the the characters, whereas in 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 the original series, it, there wasn't a whole lot of consistency across the board. <laughs> Had a lot of different ideas for how you know starship works, starships worked, and and stuff. But I think DC Fontana's episodes are always always consistent. Yes, yeah, yeah. She she is an oasis of consistency and a sea of making it up yeah original series <laughs> try lithium crystals and 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 what have you <laughs> yeah I can't remember that. they call those crystals a few different things don't they in the, the original series yeah and oh, well they can't even decide on starfleet name no that's right that's not right. a space probe agency at one point <laughs> oh. oh there's an episode where um, scotty gets a massive boner when they find a ship with ion drive which is, is, oh, I'd like to get my hands on on that, he says. <laughs> <laughs> okay, okay, <laughs> he says. <laughs> um, yeah, I can't remember what episode that is, though. Um, oh, is it? Um, I know, I can't. Rick, you must know. <laughs> to be honest, your impression has not really rung a bell with me on that one. <laughs> is, that, is that an impression? I thought that was a clip, Rick. <laughs> 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 It's a, it's an episode where they where they um, they encounter a ship that's got a fancy. It's got ion drive, but and Scotty gets really excited by it. And I can't remember the episode, but I think it might be an episode where the sh- the ship gets taken over by by aliens or something. I'm not being very helpful, <laughs> um, but I just remember Scotty gets a gets a tent in his trousers just from that is ion it, drive. Is it Spock's brain and his kilt? Yes, yeah. yes, it the is. Sh- Brilliant. That, well that she brings up um, but when, before she beams over and takes Spock's brain. 
Yeah, that's like yeah. a high on drive yeah, or something. What an episode. Yeah. <laughs> it's it's yeah. either that or there was the uh, Return to Tomorrow, I think, where um, there's three advanced beings who live in like flashing globes and want to build, use Kirk, Spock, and um, another woman's bodies to make themselves robot bodies. Because they offer high technology dri- warp drives and stuff that Spock, that Scotty gets super excited over. So, yeah. Oh yeah, but I think I think we're probably talking Spock's brain for when you're 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 referencing. <laughs> I think you're right. <laughs> to be fair, that plot point is maybe maybe the least memorable <laughs> out of the in, in all all episode Spock's brain. <laughs> No, 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 clearly not. <laughs> <laughs> no, I remember. I mainly remember some, uh, some fainting diversion. <laughs> oh, oh, oh. <laughs> uh, Rick, you've watched that episode too many times, <laughs> or maybe not enough. Which Rick are you talking uh, to? Do you know what? Both of you. Both <laughs> be ashamed of yourselves. Um. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, you're, you're definitely not on the barking at the right tree if you want me to be ashamed of myself for watching Star Trek. I, I don't know. So, um, I guess going, going back to DC Fontana, was was, <laughs> was Dax the, the last episode of Star Trek that she wrote? Yes, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah she didn't. And she wasn't involved in Voyager or Enterprise? No, no. Or, um, or in Discovery. Uh, yes, yeah. Obviously, I think she's very much retired by Discovery time. Although, I mean, she was yeah. fairly active in terms of like conventions and things. She was always quite there and, you know, and quite present in in fan circles. So, yeah, which was... that would have been interesting to know what she thought of Discovery. Mm. Um, yeah, from I she wrote something would... like Journey to Babel. Her her thoughts on the Spock family dynamic. As yeah, in Discovery would have been really interesting. Definitely, as I personally am a massive fan of the Spock family dynamic in in Discovery. I think it's one of my favourite parts. Yeah, it is amazing. No, I agree. Family. I think it's, I think it's one of the strongest elements. And I just, it would have been interesting to find out what she thought. You know, all those years later, mm. that these, you know, these ideas that she came up with are still being explored in in Discovery. Well, yeah, because the the idea that's around. Sarek not talking to Spock all these years because of his decision to go into Starfleet was really sort of given a new twist in Discovery on the based on the fact, you know, with the revelation that Sarek literally denied Michael Burnham what she wanted in favour of Spock, only for Spock to not take that offer up. And that sort of, that leads to the rift rather than just the general... Previously, it kind of almost seemed like Sarah was prejudiced against Starfleet, like it was not good enough for his son or something. Yeah. But in, in fact, yeah. it's like, it, it, it's the ultimate sort of backfire on his betrayal of his adopted daughter, essentially. So, it's yeah, it's a whole new level. And it would have been fascinating to want to know what, um, what her, her thoughts were on that. Yeah, um, and it's another mm. sign of that enduring legacy that she's left upon Star Trek. That you know, some, that in Discovery we pick up on a story thread that she did fifty years previously, and and try and, and explore a new facet to it. Cool. Well, that that feels like that that sort of brings us to 
to the end of what we're of what we're talking about. I think so. Um, do, does anyone else? Does anyone have any uh, any final thoughts? I mean, I guess her. I mean, DC DC Fontana's passing uh, was the first of a of a few that have happened in the last couple of weeks, and I suppose it just makes you um, appreciate in some way that you know people aren't mm. around forever and. People involved in Star Trek feel like you feel like they're going to be around forever because they're because of their contribution and um, but it's not the case. So you know, uh, what a way to be yes. remembered though for being involved in you know involved in this thing. So yeah, that's what I, that's what I yeah want. absolutely. Cool. <laughs> okay, like, thank you very much, everyone. Yeah. See you. Uh, Merry Christmas. Bye. <laughs> Do you realize how incredible this is? That's tradition! You ever noticed her bum? What? Her bum! Oh no! I will say. I will say. Fewer things. Fewer things. Okay. Enough of this self indulgence. Thank you so much for listening to our podcast. If you want to get in touch with us, our website is www.lowerdexradio.co.uk. You can reach us on the Twitters at at 10 backward 10 being the number and backward being the word backward we're also on facebook at www.facebook.com forward slash 10 backward podcast you can also email us at crew at lowerdexradio.co.uk on a personal individual level my twitter is at will turland rick everson's twitter is at trek fan rick and rick palmer's twitter is at Mr. Imhotep. Hi, thank you again for listening to the podcast. I hope you enjoyed it. If you did, you might consider supporting us. We have now have a Patreon uh, where people can uh, pledge small amounts to fund our ongoing projects like uh, keeping our website up to date, our, um, new audio equipment as we're going along, and potentially uh, opportunities to expand our content. Uh, you can go look at this at patreon.com forward slash lower decks radio uh, if you don't feel you can donate but would still like to support us we would love it if you could subscribe to us or however get your podcast through itunes stitcher google play or we're on various third party apps and if you could leave us a review on any of those that would be fantastic and would be very appreciative thanks again for listening and please tune in for more podcasts from the 10 backward crew let's make sure history never forgets the name 10 backward Laddie, don't you think you should rephrase that? Ten backward. Ten backward. Nothing can hurt you. I gave you that. You are great. I am great. <laughs>